And please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. Gospel of Matthew chapter 11, we'll be reading verses 16 through 24. Uh, with a pretty simple title for today's message, Jesus Rebukes and Condemns. Um, and yes, you have the outline up there, so hopefully that will be helpful to kind of follow along. Um, before, we, before we jump into this passage, uh, I want to address kind of a larger issue into which our passage fits. It's something I've, I've mentioned before, uh, but I think, I think it's important to say again, some things just bear repeating and they're good for us. Uh, we always want to make sure that when we come to the Gospels and we read about the life of Jesus, that we are realizing that there is a, a full picture that the Bible gives us that we always want to try to keep in mind whenever we think about Jesus. Um, our culture uh, surrounding us is, is very drawn to the love of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus. I know last time I preached, um, I, I spoke on Jesus' compassion for people, and that's right and good, and we should stress that. But compassion and love and mercy is not the only thing the Bible reveals to us about Jesus. There's a full picture. Jesus is a righteous and holy man. He is the eternal Son of the only God, and He reflects that holiness and righteousness and justice and all that He says and all that He does. And so we will hear, if we're listening, we will hear Jesus say things um, that are uncomfortable to our modern sensibilities. Uh, we, will, we will not just read in the Gospels, we'll read in other places as well. Uh, the full, we'll see the full picture of who He is as a righteous judge. He's going to come one day and, and destroy all His enemies uh, there will be a great battle, and all who still oppose him will be put to death. Um, that is who he is. That is what he is going to do. Uh, we also know, uh, maybe we do, that the one person who spoke about hell and judgment more than anyone else in the Bible is Jesus. Okay? And so we want to keep these things in mind whenever we come to the Gospels, uh, whenever we think about Jesus, because that's who he is too. And we are diminished in our view of him if we don't keep those things in mind. It's like, take one of your favorite stories. I was thinking about this, like Lord of the Rings. Uh, one of the chief characters in there, uh, Aragorn, you know, the, the king who, who is to be, you know, towards the end of, of the book. Imagine if you just take out all the references to him being king in that book and you just have a, 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 a part. He's just some wandering guy who's good with a sword. I mean, it, it totally ruins your understanding of the character. Uh, you can't make sense of all that's going on. And when you get to the end, it's like, who is this guy? I don't know him. I don't, I don't know what's going on. Why is he king? It's never been talked about. Or think about if you have like a favorite family picture and you cut out one, you know, the mom or the dad. And then all of a sudden it's like you're not getting a, a full picture of who that family is. And that's why when it comes to Jesus, we all, always want to try to keep in mind all that he's about and all that he taught. And our passage today in Matthew 11 is one of those passages that pushes against our modern sensibilities about the nice, meek, mild, loving, kind Jesus. He is all those things, but more. And our passage today helps us see that. So let's begin reading in Matthew chapter 11, verse 16. We'll read up through verse 24. And remember, on the heel, this is coming right on the heels of Jesus answering John for his doubts and preaching to the people about who John the Baptist was. 
And he says in verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him. A glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day." But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in light of this this text, Lord, which shows us uh, Jesus saying things to people and about people, Lord, that are striking, they're sobering, and they're needed. Uh, So Lord, help us to have the ears to hear, help us have insight and wisdom into all that is being said. And Lord, help us faithfully apply it to our lives, God, so that we might better be conformed to Christ and walk in obedience to you because of what is in these few verses. So we commit our hearts and minds to you and pray for your help. Right now, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So two main points uh, this afternoon that I want us to consider um, as Jesus is engaging people. First, we see his rebuke of unappeasable critics. And secondly, we'll see uh, his condemnation of unrepentant City. So let's consider in verses 16 through 19, Jesus's rebuke of unappeasable critics. Again, look at verse 16. He says, to what shall I compare this generation? And so he's looking out at those around him, specifically his opponents, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes and folks like that, who were constantly pushing against Jesus, constantly trying to trip him up, make him stumble, make him look dumb, get something that they could find to accuse, accuse him with. Um, and he says, what shall I compare this generation? And it, it's very striking, the, the illustration that he uses here. He says, it is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Um, and so what Jesus is doing here, he's looking at these opponents of his, these critics of his, and he's, he's giving us an illustration to picture what's actually going on in their criticism. And so he uses this picture of children playing. Now, you know, we, we all, most of us in here, you know, we played games when we were kids. We, you know, watched TVs. We knew stories. We'd dress up and we'd imitate the things that we saw. I remember back when I was, man, I think it was 1983, 19. 19- 82, Return of the Jedi had just come out, um, you know, and being a, a young man loving sci-fi and Star Wars, loved Luke Skywalker, you know, with, with, you know, wielding his green lightsaber. And I remember for Halloween that year, my mom actually bought um, a, set, a shirt and a, and a set of pants and she dyed them black 
in her wash in the washing machine. For those of you who do washing machines, I don't know how that works or if it stained it or what, but she made me a Luke Skywalker costume. I had that green plastic lightsaber and I was as happy as I could be. And you know, you, you see somebody else in Halloween costume and their, you know, Darth Vader costume, this, that, and the other. And you're like, yeah, we're going to imitate what we saw in the movie. And you have fun. That's what kids do. And sometimes even as adults, if we get the right toys, we still do. I mean, you know, you would guys, if you had that lightsaber, you're going to play with it too. Um, so, but we, we, that's what we do. It's fun. We imitate things that we see. And so back in Jesus's day, there were two main things. They, you know, they didn't have Star Wars back then. So they were a little more limited in their options than uh, we are today. <clears throat> and so weddings and funerals were big public events. Okay. And so you, you know, at the weddings, it's a time of celebration. You'd have the flute playing, you know, music and dancing and everything like that. And then you'd have funerals, which were very sad and mournful. And you'd sing sad songs and you'd have the professional mourners who would, you'd hire, you know, they'd come and they'd wail loudly and, you know, they'd beat their breasts and all of that. And so what would the children do? They would imitate weddings and funerals. That was part of their fun. That was part of their games. And so that's what Jesus is drawing on here when he says it's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance, we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. And what he's getting at here is, you know, not only do kids have fun mimicking and imitating, you know, their heroes and their, their favorite characters and stuff like that, but if you, you know, have a sibling or have raised siblings, you also know that at times siblings don't get along. I mean, you know, sometimes it's like angels, the, the choirs are singing and mom and dad are like, this is awesome. This is amazing. And then other times it's like, how did the devil get in our home and these two kids in such a way? Um, but you know, I mean, you know how it goes, right? They're playing well. And all of a sudden you hear it, mom, dad, she cheated. He's lying, this, that, and the other. And, you know, somebody, this happened in our house, you know, they're playing a game and one of them changes the rules mid-game but doesn't tell the other one. And then, like, I win because I changed the rule. No, that's not fair. And, you know, you have to have a moment of, you know, a lesson and instructing. You can't do that. If you agree upon this, you got to stick with it. Um, but it happens. And then sometimes kids get, you know, little snits with each other and, you know, oh, let's play this. No, they just stand there. I'm not playing with you. That's what's happening in Jesus's uh, story here. We played the flute for you. We were going to imitate the wedding. We're going to, you know, march like the bride and groom. And we're going to sing and dance and have a good time. But you didn't do it. And then he talks about the funeral. We sang a dirge, meaning, okay, you need to act like you're all sad, like the people do when someone dies. You need to beat your chest. You need to wail loudly. You didn't do it. And the point is, no matter what was suggested in their stubbornness, they said, nope, not going to have anything to do with that. Not going to have anything to do with it. I'm mad. I don't like you right now. And so that is why Jesus says in verse 18, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so we saw the illustration that Jesus used, and this is the reality that Jesus addressed, namely that his opponents had already decided against John and Jesus, no matter what these men said or did. They said, I don't like you, just like the little kids. Nope, doesn't matter what you say, doesn't matter what you do. I'm not going to go along. I'm not going to affirm it. I'm not going to celebrate it. I'm just going to be mad. I'm not going to like you. That is exactly what they were doing. They had decided in their hearts 
that no matter what John did, he couldn't do right. No matter what Jesus said or did, he couldn't do right. They were dead set against him no matter what happened. And that leads us then to the point that Jesus made in verse 19, the very end. He says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds, or you could say justified by her children. It could be an allusion back to the book of Proverbs where wisdom is personified as this lady who beckons people to come and eat of her rich food and her, her, of her fare and, and gain wisdom and gain knowledge and gain insight and gain life. Um, and Jesus is saying wisdom is justified by her deeds or her children. And what he's saying is he and John were vindicated. They were proven to be in the right by the very things their opponents falsely criticized in them. I mean, think again, John the Baptist. I mean, he would definitely led an interesting lifestyle <coughs> out in the wilderness, you know, eating locusts and wild honey. You know, he dressed like Elijah the prophet. Um, you know, he, he was very, very uh, ascetic, as they say. He had a very strict everything, but he preached about the kingdom. He preached about repentance. You could find no fault in this man. And yet, what did they say about him? Oh, he's demon-possessed. And it's like, where would you get something like that? Like, you just got to like create that out of thin air because there's nothing in John or his ministry that would lead you to think he has a demon. All he's done is faithfully preach from the Old Testament, pointing people to the Messiah, calling people to repent in light of the coming kingdom. He did, like, there was nothing that he did or said that would lead anybody of a reasonable mind to say he has a demon, and yet that is exactly the conclusion they came to. He's got a demon. Even worse, think about how they talked about Jesus. You know, it, kind of the opposite here in terms of like social engagement. John was out in the wilderness, kind of separated from society. Jesus is there in the midst of people, but he wasn't hobnobbing with all the religious elites and all the rich people. Who was it he hung out with? Uh, they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. <clears throat> Simply because he went to where people were and engaged them where they were. And they said, well, he, he, he must be a drunkard and a glutton. I mean, look who he's hanging out with. Now, a lot of times it's true. The company we keep reveals who we really are. But that doesn't stick with Jesus. It never did. It never did. Everywhere Jesus went, he took holiness and righteousness and new life and brought that to bear everywhere. Like when he would uh, encounter a leper and reach out and touch the leper. Anyone else did that, they would become unclean. But because of who he was as the sinless son of God, when Jesus touches the unclean, he makes it clean. He can't be touched by sin in that way. He can't be touched by infirmity. He can't be corrupted. And the Pharisees, had they been thinking rightly, they would have known that. And yet they still accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard because of who he hung out with. And it does bear saying, there's, there's a line of thought out there that says because Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners that he really must have affirmed their lifestyle, joined with them in what he did because that's how you really reach people. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. From the very beginning to the very end, Jesus was calling people to repentance. And in that same vein that is he who is clean, makes the unclean clean again. Uh, he brings new life to where there is death and all of that. 
Jesus went to meet people where they were while and loved them and cared for them and called them out of that life to something better. He never affirmed sin. He never affirmed sin. And there are many in our culture today, even in the church, who, who imply, even outright say that he must have, otherwise he wouldn't have been with those people. You can be around those who don't know Jesus and you can love them and, and, and be just a human being to them without, without affirming the sin that they're living in. It is totally possible to do that. Um, that's what Jesus did, and he will give us the grace to do it as well. And that's why he says, wisdom is justified by her deeds or her children. It's like if you are, have any shred of reason in you, of clear-sightedness, you're going to see that what these Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees are saying about John and Jesus, it's just not true. It's just not true. But also remember in the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus say? People are going to persecute you and do what? Utter all kinds of... Let me, let me go back and read this so I don't mess it up. They're going to utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That means you can do everything right and people are still going to make up stuff about you that's not true, which is exactly what they were doing here about John and Jesus. And so what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway for us? We need to acknowledge... We need to acknowledge that we have sinful presuppositions, sinful predispositions, sinful assumptions, and sinful biases against Jesus and the gospel. It's inherent. We come into this world biased against Jesus, biased against God, biased against the truth. What does Paul say about us at the beginning of Romans in Romans chapter 1? He says, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now he's talking about what's in nature and creation, but even more when truth is personified and he's a living, breathing person right in front of us like Jesus was, even more does, does sin within us want to put that truth down so we don't have to encounter it. We have to recognize that people are going to do much to legitimize their lack of faith in Christ, when in reality, they are merely covering the fact they just don't want it to be true. You see Jesus revealing the motives of the Pharisees in this rebuke of them here in Matthew chapter 11. John and Jesus were doing everything right, and all they could see was wrong. That's all they could see. And so if I may I want to apply this in a very specific way to our own day with a common and modern accusation against Christians that says this, that we are narrow-minded just, like so just like so many Jews, people today have already made their minds up about Jesus and about Christianity, and they say, you Christians are just narrow-minded. You don't, you don't really care about anyone. You just got your truth and you want to keep it. And this is why I say these critics are unappeasable, at least from a human perspective. Because no matter what we say or do, in their minds, Christians are going to be wrong, just like John and Jesus. No matter what they said or did, they were going to be accused of wrong. Same thing with the church today. These folks say, critics often say, we're the truly open-minded ones, and you Christians are the narrow-minded ones. You're, you're harsh, you're this, you're that. When in reality, the people making those criticisms, they are the ones who are the most narrow-minded. If we're going to be honest about the situation, what do I mean by that? 
What I mean is this, as Christians, we do not fear facts and evidences. We don't fear that. Why? Because we know that God's truth will be proven. Like we, we don't have to fear engaging the world. We don't have to fear engaging objections. Why? Because we know that God's truth will be vindicated. It will. Let's, let's put it out there. Somebody has an objection against the Bible. Let, let's show that objection can be answered. Somebody has an objection against God. Let's show that objection can be answered. We're not hiding anything. Christians are actually more open-minded because we're okay. We know we have the truth, so let's put it out there. Let's talk about it. We're not going to hide from anything. It's actually narrow-minded to say ahead of time that no matter what you Christians say, you can't be right. That's not open-minded. That's actually closed-minded and narrow-minded. And if anyone is, is here or listening to this, watching this online, let me challenge you. Let me challenge you. Reconsider that position. Who's the narrow-minded one? We are ready to have the discussion. Are you? Christianity is an open book, literally. Let's have at it. Let's have that discussion. Let's talk about it. Don't be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes who already made their mind up and said, no matter what Jesus says, no matter what he does, he's going to be wrong. That's not open-mindedness. That's actually true narrow-mindedness. And we should never be that way as Christians. We should never be afraid to engage with the world in terms of what the Bible teaches. And so let's not be like that. Let's be on guard against that. If someone accuses you of being narrow-minded because you say Jesus is the only way, okay, let's open up and let's see what the Bible says and let's examine this case. And you'll see if they're genuine or not, whether they actually want to do that. You'll see really quickly whether or not they're actually interested in truth or they're just trying to score a rhetorical point and try to dismiss you and disregard you. But we see here Jesus clearly rebuking unappeasable critics. But we know God's truth can overcome even that in us, and let's be thankful for that. Let's look at the second main point here, verses 20 through 24. Jesus' condemnation of unrepentant cities. So he goes from specific groups of people to entire cities where he was ministering. Look again at verse 20. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And he says this, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes." But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Some striking words here. And I mean, first we see that these... um, cities were condemned for rejecting Jesus. I mean, he's clearly condemning them. He's denouncing them, saying, judgment is coming on you. Okay, why though? Here's the question. Why did Jesus denounce them? Look at verse 20. It says, he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And so they saw Jesus do miracles. Obviously, he was teaching and preaching as well, but they saw his miracles, raising the dead, healing the sick, restoring uh, speech to the mute, sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. 
uh, the ability to walk to the lame. They saw him doing all these things and they would not repent. They rejected him. And so in rejecting his miracles, they were rejecting Christ himself. Uh, very similarly, it's like when Jesus rebukes Saul on the road to Damascus. You know, Saul wasn't technically persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the church. But Jesus said, what? Why are you persecuting me? And so it's, it's this, this mindset that we see today that says, I can take parts of Jesus and reject the others. And Jesus is like, look, you either got to take all of who I am or you can't have any of me. So to say, well, like the liberal, liberal and progressive Christians want to do, well, you know, we don't believe in the supernatural. We don't believe like in the virgin birth, the resurrection from the dead, all the miracles. We just, we just want the Jesus who, well, you can't separate Jesus up like that. You either take all of him or you can have none of him. Whatever you think you have, if you do, that is not the real Jesus. It's another Jesus. And so they were condemned for rejecting him. They saw his works. They rejected those. And I think what this does too as well is it refutes the mistaken notion that says if we can just have enough of the miraculous, then more and more people will believe in Jesus. Because that's a very common thought in a lot of churches. If, if God would just do miracles in our midst, more people would get saved. They'd be convinced and they would come to Christ. And then all of a sudden we'd see this big revival. If we can just pray miracles down. And here's the thing. These people saw the son of God himself doing miracles and they still rejected him. That should give us pause in our, in, in, our, in our earnest pursuit for revival to say, you know, Lord, if you would just do a miracle, just heal somebody who's sick or just do some amazing thing so that people would see that amazing thing and then believe, it, it should push back on that and make us have pause and say, wait a minute, maybe that's not what's most important. Why? Because the presence of miracles is no guarantee that people will respond to the gospel in faith. It's no guarantee why? One, miracles can be faked. Satan can do miracles too. Um, but also, our faith does not depend on a display of the miraculous. If you don't ever see a miracle in your life, like a physical, like supernatural thing, your faith should not be shaken in any way. Even after the resurrection, it says at the end of Matthew in chapter 28, after Jesus had risen from the dead, he called the disciples to himself. This is the resurrected Christ. And it says some still doubted. So merely the presence of the miraculous is no guarantee that faith will be there and that people will start coming to Christ. Our faith does not depend on a display of the miraculous, but on at least three sure and certain realities. Three things that our faith should depend on. Number one, the character of God. Number two, the sufficiency of Jesus. And number three, the truthfulness of Scripture. When we sang about the character of God, why do we sing a song like, Great is thy faithfulness? Because we need to know that God is faithful. We need to know that. We need to hear that. Because we are so prone to want to trust in our own faithfulness to God, when in reality we are to rest in God's faithfulness to us. At the end of the day, our hope is not, did I do my best for Jesus? Because if you're honest, none of us can say, I did my very best. I might have did better than yesterday, but I know I can do better tomorrow. And is he going to accept me based on my best today or on my best tomorrow? What if my best was 10 years ago and man, I've really fallen off since then? 
No, our faith rests in the faithfulness of God. And that's why we sing about it. That's why we go there to his character. Our faith rests in his character. It rests, secondly, in the sufficiency of Jesus. Related to this, you and I are not sufficient to do what is necessary to be right with God. We can't do it. We cannot do it on our best days. As Jerry Bridges said, we're still in need of grace. We're still in need of help. Why does the, again, going back to the Lamentations and the song we sang, why do we need new mercies every morning? It's because we are, in, we are helpless every morning. Mercy is help for those who are helpless. It's pity on those in need. Why do we need new mercies every day? Because we are in need every day. And God provided for our need everything in Jesus. His perfect life, His substitutionary death, His resurrection from the dead. He provided it all in Jesus. There's nothing missing. Nothing is missing from what Christ did and from who He is. Everything required is in Jesus and our faith rests on Him. And thirdly, our faith rests in the truthfulness of Scripture. All that we know about God, all that we know about Jesus is contained in this book. It's contained in this book. Um, And that's why it's not enough to say the Bible, well, it's inerrant, it's infallible in matters of faith and practice, but it could get matters of history and science wrong. Like that doesn't ultimately add up. Why? Because every bit of faith and practice in the Bible is based on historical accuracy. If it gets the history wrong, then the faith is thrown into question. Everything we try to believe about God is wrong if the Bible gets history wrong. And so the truthfulness of this book is absolutely essential for our faith. We cannot dismiss it. We don't relegate it to second place. We don't unhitch any part from the other. We take the whole thing together uh, there's a great message out there. Uh, might post a link uh, in, in GroupMe for this because it is so good. It's Vody Balkum where he talks about why he chooses to believe the Bible. And some of you know this phrase. And he unpacks this for about an hour. And it is solid, solid gold. He says, I choose to believe the Bible because the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that take place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Oh my goodness, that's good stuff. How can you trust this word? Because it has proven itself trustworthy time and time again. And every assault, every attack falls to the ground. So our faith rests on what? The character of God, the sufficiency of Jesus, and the truthfulness of Scripture. Listen to the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. says this about faith. The principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to what? To Christ. Not to ourselves. To Christ. Accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone. Him alone. For justification, sanctification, and eternal life. Accepting, receiving, and resting on Christ alone. That's what faith does. It receives what is outside of itself. There is nothing in us that contributes to what Christ gives. We see next, therefore, that the condemnation of these cities was justly severe. Look at verse 22. 
in verse 24. He says, I tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And in verse 24, I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This condemnation seems severe, but it is just. It is right and it is deserved. These three cities that Jesus mentions here, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, they're all cities near the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was even kind of like Jesus' base of operations or his headquarters, as it were, for a lot of his ministry up there. In these cities, they physically and visibly saw Christ's mighty works. And as I said last time when I I preached on this in Matthew uh, 9 um, or in 10, it came up there, it's coming up here. Because they saw Jesus and because they heard Jesus, their judgment, their condemnation will be so much greater than that of those wicked cities that Jesus mentions in comparison. Hold your place here in Matthew. I want us to look at a couple of these passages. Last time I talked about this, I want to go a little more in depth just for a moment. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 26. If you want to see God's judgment on Tyre and Sidon, Ezekiel 26 through 28. Sidon is at the very end of 28. Uh, The bulk of this is against the city of Tyre. We're going to look at just a few sections of this. We don't have time to read all three chapters, though I would encourage you to do that. Ezekiel chapter 26. We're going to begin in verse 15, read through verse 21. Pages are still turning. We'll give it one more second. Um, At least Ezekiel is easier to find than some of the minor prophets. Um, All right, so verse 15, he says, Thus says the Lord God to Tyre, Will not the coastlands shake at the sound of your fall when the wounded groan when slaughter is made in your midst? Then all the princes of the sea will step down from their thrones and remove their robes and strip off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground and tremble every moment and be appalled at you. And they will raise a lamentation over you and say to you, How you have perished, you who were inhabited from the seas. O city renowned, who was mighty on the sea, she and her inhabitants imposed their terror on all her inhabitants. Now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall, and the coastlands that are on the sea are dismayed at your passing. For thus says the Lord God, when I make you a city laid waste like the cities that are not inhabited, when I bring up the deep over you and the great waters cover you, then I will make you go down with those who go down to the pit, to the people of old, and I will make you to dwell in the world below among ruins from of old with those who go down to the pit so that you will not be inhabited, but I will set beauty in the land of the living. I will bring you to a dreadful end and you shall be no more. Though you be sought for, you will never be found again. And then in chapter 28, begin reading in verse 11. This is a lament over the king of Tyre. And some have seen in here, not just the king of Tyre, but the one behind the king of Tyre, Satan himself. And there's, there could be some validity to that. But let's read in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle 
and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. And then he says in verse 22 to Sidon, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and manifest my holiness in her. For I will send pestilence into her and blood into her streets. And the slain shall fall in her midst by the sword that is against her on every side. They will know that I am the Lord. That's the tire inside that Jesus is talking about. And you can see even in those passages that God's judgment on these cities was severe. I mean, he's not pulling any punches. I mean, he is going to lay them low for their evil and their wickedness. Flip further back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 19. We know this story very, very well, as do most people in our culture around us. Genesis 19, verses 23 through 29. This is the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. Beginning of verse 23, it says this, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. And then lastly, you don't have to turn there. You can turn back to um, Matthew 11. But Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10 through 10 in a section on judgment. Peter says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then verse 6, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes... He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. I mean, you think about what Scripture says about the ancient cities of Tyre and Sidon, and then even further back, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is some of the severest judgment that God could pronounce and pour out on people. And yet, 
Jesus says. Listen again to verse... Let's just read 21 through 24. And think about the wickedness of those cities in comparison to Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum. Think about the comparison here and what Jesus is saying. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus is saying that if those cities had seen the miracles and obviously heard the preaching that Bethsaida and Chorazin heard, they would have repented. They would have turned from their sin and they would have escaped God's judgment. And so he says, but I tell you, It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And then he goes to Capernaum. He asks, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Imagine that. That wicked city of Sodom. That wicked, wicked city, which even serves, as Peter said, as an example of final judgment and punishment says, if they had seen what you saw, they, that city would still be here to this day. And that's why he says in verse 24, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Why? Because the more we know, the more we are accountable for. The more we know about Jesus, the more we know about God, the greater our responsibility to accept that, believe that, embrace that, and obey it. The more we know, the more we are accountable for. And so the takeaway for us is simply this. Recognize the danger. Recognize the danger if you are hearing this message and you still refuse Jesus. There is only one thing coming, and that is judgment. That's judgment. And it will be worse for you than the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon, as wicked as they were. If you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and refuse it, your judgment will be all the stricter and greater. But there's a flip side to this. There is the greatest blessing imaginable promised to you if you receive this message and repent. If you receive this, if you hear this and you realize, oh my goodness, I am in a bad state in and of myself. I need rescue. I need Jesus. If you, see, if you feel that, run to him. Repent of your sin. He will receive you. He will forgive you. He will welcome you into the family of God. He will clean you up. He will clothe you in his righteousness and he will make you God's forever. So no matter how or where you are, Recognize there is danger in refusing Jesus, but there is the greatest blessing in receiving Him. So let's transition because we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And I think, I think what we were looking at here in Matthew 11, it is fitting to kind of lead us into that because the Lord's Supper, communion, when we partake of these elements, these elements are representing our Savior in His work, in His death for us on earth. The cross. Jesus bore our judgment in his body on the tree, as it is said. He bore all the wrath that we deserve. And so we partake of the Lord's Supper as a way of celebrating 
His perfect, complete, finished work of remembering it, what He's done for us, and of identifying with Him, of nurturing our faith, and of proclaiming it until He comes again. So let's read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So a few thoughts on this, and then we'll pray, and then we will partake together um, of the Lord's Supper. The, The elements that we are about to partake of, there's nothing magic about them. They don't convey salvation. They don't make us Christian, whereas before we weren't a Christian. This is something only true believers do. If you are already a Christian and you're not living in unrepentant sin, you're not engaged in something willfully that you know displeases the Lord, um, if you are in a right standing with God, um, as far as your character is concerned, as far as your life is, you know, come and partake and enjoy and celebrate. But again, if you're not a believer, then we ask that you receive not these elements, but what these elements point to, which is Jesus Himself. We partake as a way of celebrating our Savior and His sufficient work for us. Uh, So let's pray. Father, we are grateful that on the cross, Jesus bore the judgment that we deserve. What is coming on the unrepentant, what is pictured in Sodom and Gomorrah, that is what Jesus received while He hung on that cross. So when we partake of these elements representing His body and His blood, Lord, help us in our souls remember and feel the weight of what Jesus has done for us. He is a perfect Savior. Oh, He is such a perfect Savior for so great a sinners as we. And thank You, Lord, that all that we need to be right with You, we have in Him. And so, Lord, help us remember and remember well as we partake of these elements. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.